Tomer, I recently learned that you're going to be at the Bitcoin conference, uh, which is really exciting. I'm very excited to meet you in the flesh for the very first time. And uh, I heard that it's going to be the first time that you meet a lot of your teammates at Swan. I've only met in person one of my teammates at Swan when he was coming through Toronto because he's on the board of directors of some other company. Uh, And so everybody else is like this virtual relationship, like the one you and I have. We've never we've never met in person. (laughs) <laughs> and, and so many people who I'm going to meet for the first time who I've only ever listened to on podcasts at one and a half times. And I accidentally started listening to some podcasts at, at real time. And these people are going to sound drunk to me because they're going to be speaking at like two thirds their normal speed. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, at least you get used to the, the slow pace of my, uh, of my talking uh, on these spaces. But uh, sir, I, I think that this is a great example of what the Bitcoin conference is is made for. It's bringing Bitcoiners together. This is such a virtual space uh, that Bitcoiners have this like desire to congregate and come together. Uh, so the Bitcoin conference is the ultimate gathering of Bitcoiners, 30,000 Bitcoiners strong. Uh, it's four days of Bitcoin madness uh industry day which is like a b2b day uh two days of uh general admission and then sound money fest which is a music festival for bitcoiners so i mean there's nothing more celebratory of uh this community and nothing shows the world that bitcoin is real than thirty thousand bitcoiners coming together so uh, i'm really excited to be hosting it i'm really excited to be making uh you getting to meet your teammates possible and I'm really excited to hopefully enable a lot of other Bitcoiners to uh, to accomplish their goals, uh, do what they need to do within the space and and meet Bitcoiners that they've been working with or chatting to uh, online for for years or plus uh, or more. Yeah. So with that being said, you all can get your tickets at b.cc forward slash conference. Use promo code Satoshi to save 10 percent. And if you pay in Bitcoin, we want those sats. We're going to give you a pretty steep discount as well. So, uh, yeah, we have a discount for, for sats, and you can stack that with the Satoshi promo as well. So uh, maximize your savings. Be in Miami. It's an investment in yourself. Do not miss it. Uh, and with that, Tomer, I want to go and uh, introduce this conversation. Um, you wrote a really insightful piece. Uh, about branding in general and the power of a brand and the most powerful brands uh, and, you know, put it in the context of Bitcoin. So I want to tease out that conversation. I'm going to give you back the mic. (laughs) All right. So where to begin uh, is uh, kind of at the history of this notion of brand equity, which is there's a difference between what a whole company is worth and what its brand is worth. And, and for people who follow marketing, they, they follow this closely. There's, there's a few firms that specialize in measuring brand equity. Uh, the one that I cited in my article is called Interbrand, uh, and they've been publishing for decades what the most valuable brands in the world are and what they're worth. They do some kind of research uh, to figure them out. And for the longest time, Coca-Cola was the most valuable brand in the world. Something like Disney was close up, but Coca-Cola was the most valuable brand in the world. And and the definition of brand equity is, uh, there's actually a dictionary definition I cited in the article. It's it's the commercial value that derives from the consumer perception of the brand name of a particular product and service rather than from the product or service itself, right? So like a bottle of no-name cola 
would be worth a lot less than a bottle of Coca-Cola, which is pretty much the same product. It's water and sugar and carbonation and that cola flavoring. Uh, but if it's got Coca-Cola on it, it's worth a lot more and Coca-Cola can charge a lot more. And, uh, and so that's where the brand value comes in. And so that's just a, a pretty basic definition. Like what you're prepared to pay above what the value of a thing would be if it didn't have the brand is the brand value. It's a pretty simple concept. And so how did Coca-Cola, why did Coca-Cola become the king of brands in the first place is, is where I begin this analysis. And you, you can feel free to jump in with any interruptions or questions you have along the way, CK, because I'll just kind of unfold the article otherwise. Um, but so Coca-Cola wasn't originally the king of brands. Uh, the reason it's actually called Coca-Cola, Coca, uh, is because it used to have a much more potent ingredient in it, uh, which comes from the coca plant. And that ingredient was cocaine. Coca so Coca-Cola didn't even have this fancy logo. Uh, it was invented by a guy named J.S. Pemberton. And the original ads for it just talked about it as an intellectual beverage. It made quotes around that and put it and talked about how the cocaine in it made it exhilarating and delicious and refreshing and invigorating. And uh, but then some, we all know what happened in 1920. Uh, the main ingredient in this product became illegal and they had to take it out. And so they took it out and it was five cents a bottle. Coca-Cola, you know, it's gotten expensive lately because of the devaluation of the currency since 1971. But really, like for 100 years, Coca-Cola was five cents a bottle and they kept it at five cents a bottle. And you can imagine uh, back when it had cocaine in it, like f at least four cents of the value of Coca-Cola was cocaine. And then everything else, the water, the sugar, the flavoring might have been worth the one cent. But, but on that day in 1920, when they took out all the cocaine, so they took out four cents of value from the five cent bottle and they kept the five cents and now the five cent price. So now we had something worth one cent that cost five cents. Well, so what was the four cents made up of? It was made up of this thing that I just shared the definition for you that was called brand equity. And Coca-Cola took, instead of spending that four cents on cocaine, uh, growing cocaine and shipping, they spent it on marketing. And they built a brand that said, drink this, drink this thing, despite the fact that it's just sugar water. And we all bought it uh, and we all went for it. And Coca-Cola established this incredibly valuable brand. They created the current image of Santa Claus that we all see the white beard, the red suit in Norman Rockwell painted advertisements in magazines. Uh, they're just such a core part of American culture. And so this is what this became the most valuable brand in the world uh, through all this enormous amount of marketing, in a sense, out of necessity, because they used to have a product that had a functional purpose, which was to give you cocaine, like whether or not. I've never tried cocaine, so I don't know exactly how valuable it might be, but, but it had a value. And, and then that value got taken away. And so they had to build something else. And they built this thing of brand equity. And so in this article, I think, okay, well, so Coca-Cola is allegedly the most valuable brand in the world. But I think that there's a more valuable brand in the world, in fact. Um, and I think it's the U.S. dollar. Um, but, I wanna, but I want to paint a picture that the same kind of thing that happened to Coca-Cola happened to the U.S. dollar. Because the U.S. dollar didn't used to be about its brand. The U.S. dollar was 100% backed by gold. A U.S. dollar was just a claim of gold. It was 100% gold. Initially, it was $20 equaled one ounce of gold. And so if you 
apparently back in those days, none of us were alive then, but if you took a $20 bill to a Federal Reserve Bank, they would give you an ounce of gold. Um, obviously, that's not going to happen today. And then I think it was 1933, a little something happened and they said, well, it was $20 that buy you an ounce of gold. Now $20 is worth $33 is worth an ounce of gold. We've devalued the dollar, but it was still backed by gold. So it still had no brand equity, right? It's like, if you have a $20, if you have $33 or $35, whatever the amount was, you can get an ounce of gold from it. That's what backed it. And then, as since this is Bitcoin Magazine and it's a Bitcoin audience, I'm sure just about everybody in the audience knows, on uh, August 15th, 1971, they took out the same way that they took the cocaine out of Coca-Cola in 1920. They took the gold out of the U.S. dollar. And it was a piece of paper that was somehow, it had been worth gold. It was just a piece of paper now. But if they wrote 20 on it with a little logo in front of that, the S with the line through it, it was worth $20. <laughs> and if they only wrote one on it, it was only worth $1. And if they wrote 100 it was worth $100. Talk about brand equity. Right. Like it's the same rectangular piece of paper. We just wrote something different on it. It does, it's not has got not no more value fundamentally to it. And it's worth a hundred dollars. There was a thousand dollar bill, two dollar bill, whatever it is. That's what it's worth. It's all brand equity. Right. And, and I point out in the article, it is uh, so extraordinarily valuable, a brand that went into brand goes to measure the value of all the other brands in the world. It measures them using the yardstick of this brand, right? And this brand is so valuable, it exists on the keyboard of every computer in the world. And there's no Coca-Cola key. Uh, even App Apple used to have an Apple key, but they don't anymore. They just have a command key. Uh, but they, don't, they have a dollar sign key. This is the most valuable brand in the world, right? There's nothing behind the paper except for the belief, the belief and the, the marketing uh, that goes into it, which is the value of the United States of America, uh, the greatest nation in history. And so this, this becomes an interesting thing. Both Coca-Cola and the U.S. dollar went through this transition from when they were backed by something or they had some fundamental value inside of, this, of their product to, to just having brand value inside of their product. So that's kind of like this opening thing. Now, economists don't call, they don't call the brand equity of the U.S. dollar brand equity. They call it monetary premium. And so the dollar, this piece of paper that has uh, all this printing on it has a monetary premium of $20 if it's a $20 bill and $50 if it's a $50 bill. But it's all monetary premium, which is, has the exact same definition as brand equity. It's like, what's the worth of the thing in, in dollars over and above the worth of the actual product? And if you were to price a piece of rectangular paper, you wouldn't say it's worth $50. So, you know, maybe I'll just pause there before I go on and talk about how Apple dethroned Coca-Cola and, and what, what else might happen in the future as we bring this conversation back to Bitcoin. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's uh, it's really interesting to think of this idea of monetary premium is similar to a brand or brand equity, and and then that effectively translates to like some level of trust. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's a pretty interesting framework to think of it that way. And then once you start thinking about trust, that's where Bitcoin comes in. Yeah. Oh, that. So that'll be really interesting because I I don't go into it that much that particular angle of it very much in the article. But yeah, so so let me um, 
Let me go a little bit deeper. Uh, so there were not, it's not only Apple that's surpassed Coke uh, in terms of brand equity in the last decade. We've also seen Amazon and Google and Samsung and maybe Netscape or Facebook also in the brand rankings. And there's a chart in the article, so you guys can see what, where things stand uh, as of 2021 or 2020 when the chart was last updated by Interbrand. Uh, but it, the thing that they, these all have in common is there are all these tech companies with high value network effects that have overtaken Coca-Cola in the brand equity metric, according to Interbrand. And I think uh, like the other hypothesis that I put forward in this article is, well, it's not brand equity. Like you don't pay $3,000 for a MacBook Pro because it's a great brand. Uh, you don't, you don't pay nothing. <laughs> like you don't pay, you don't pay f uh, for a Google ad anything more than what the cost per click is, and you don't pay anything for Google because its business model is selling you as its product. So where it, where is the value here? Like it's clearly not necessarily in the physical product itself. I mean, like if a Herman Miller chair sitting beside a knockoff chair definitely costs hundreds of dollars more, and so you say, okay, it's the Herman Miller brand, but these these tech companies have something different going on that wasn't going on for Coca-Cola. And, and what I argue is it's, it's the code, of course, right? It's software, which is this intangible thing. And you can't measure it by how many lines of code. That's, it's not like cocaine. You can't, its value doesn't increase with the number of lines it has. It is, um, it's ephemeral and it's based off of the value of what it does for you. Right. Like so a, a, a Apple computer without the code on it is worthless. It's a it, you know, it's just it's 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 worth its scrap value. Like if the CPU isn't working, then the software can't run or if the hard, hard disk isn't working, then the software can run. But if the software isn't there, like you need all this stuff just to run the software. And it's a software that's the value. Right. It's the magic. It's this magical phenomenon where you can create documents, you can send them, you can, you can edit video, you can do all these incredible things. Like what we are all experiencing here right now is, is software. It, it's this intangible value where I'm standing in my bedroom in a, just north of Toronto and you guys are all everywhere else in the world and you guys are hearing me in real time live. Um, and that's all thanks to software. And so the point that I try to make in this article is Apple overtook Coca-Cola Coca in value, not because they were selling electro electronic components, uh, which are commoditized, but because they had amazing software, software that did things that no other company's software was able to do. And this is what we pay for. We pay the premium for the wonderful user experience that Apple created. If there's Apple haters out there, just, you know, others pay. Others pay for it, uh, not you. But but people pay for this incredible experience that software creates. And there was nothing that Coca-Cola could do with a product that's really just sugar water. No matter how many ads they ran for it, no matter how many Super Bowl ads, no matter what they did in magazines, no matter what they did, there's nothing they can do to make that sugar water as magical as a supercomputer in your pocket that can retrieve all the information in the world at your fingertips or even at your voice command. So there's not just two realms, the product realm 
and the brand realm, which is the way that these traditional firms like Interbrand evaluate things. They say, well, okay, like there's water in there that's worth one cent and there's, and people are paying five cents for it. So there's clearly four cents of brand equity. There's a whole other dimension here, which is an extraordinary dimension. It's this code dimension, the software dimension, the network dimension. I'm giving the same thing three names because we might call it by this. It's all the same thing, right? But there's three maybe layers to it. And when you look at the code realm, it just keeps getting better and better and better. Whereas there's not that much innovation we can put into fizzy sugar water. And so over time, Apple was able to overtake Coca-Cola. And so were all these other companies that rode in Apple's wake and helped lead forward this digital software, the digital transformation of our civilization. And in, in doing so, they became much more valuable than Coca-Cola. And, and, you know, like another point is that I make in there is it's obviously not the brand. If Apple sold a shirt that just had the Apple logo on it, they wouldn't be able to charge $300 for the shirt and sell a, lot of, sell a lot of these shirts. If they actually put out a shirt that just had Apple logo on it, it wouldn't make any sense. If they did put out a shirt, it would be like, like the watch that they put out, right? It's not a watch. It's a, it's a computer that fits on your wrist. And if they did so with a shirt, God only knows what technology they'd have inside of that thing. But it would be, it would be software, not the Apple logo that gives it its value. So I'm just trying to, again, drive home the point that the software is the value of these things and that the things that don't have software in them could not compete with the things that do have software. Because this is where I now come in for the kill. The U.S. dollar does not have software in it. It is brand equity. Right? It's a piece of paper. It's, it's an entry in a database, but that's not software. Right? That doesn't provide distinctive value. It's Coca-Cola. It's the most valuable thing. Everybody in the world, like there's almost nobody in the world who would say the U.S. dollar, never heard of that. It's the most valuable brand. It's got enormous brand awareness. It's got enormous brand perception, but it isn't software. And Bitcoin is. Bitcoins are new replacement for money that has all the power that the digital revolution brought to everything else before it. And in being software and in be having this network effect that grows with it and in being improvable because that's what software does and being able to build software layers on top of it, Bitcoin keeps getting better and better and better all the time. It gets, you know, Coca-Cola doesn't get better when more people drink it. Bitcoin gets better when more people save it and spend it and purchase things with it and store it and mine it. And it just keeps, and, and for people who are not that brand new to Bitcoin who are here, they've seen how much better Bitcoin keeps getting for all these reasons. There's more wallets that are released. The whole thing is an incredible platform. And it is playing, not in the brand realm, where it's just how much marketing it gets. In fact, if you think about it, Bitcoin has had zero dollars and zero cents and zero satoshis of marketing spent on it in its 13 years of existence. Its whole value is its fundamental value, which is its software value of what people value it for what that no other code in the world has ever done and arguably can ever do again. 
which is the creation of digital scarcity, the creation of digital time, the creation of complete decentralization in a monetary asset. It's unheard of, it's unprecedented. And so in time, Bitcoin will become more valuable than the other most valuable brand in the world because it has something that the other brand does not, which is this one of a kind, once in a once in history invention of digital scarcity and all of the other monetary attributes. Some of these other monetary attributes may be reproducible, but not digital scarcity and not the level of decentralization that Bitcoin has. And so it's destined, in my view, to become the most valuable brand in the world for that reason. It's playing in the space of the most valuable brand in the world, but it has the advantage that Apple had over Coca-Cola in playing for that actual most valuable brand in the world, which is money. And that's, that's in summary, the, the, uh, the argument in the essay, the argument in the, in the article uh, that, we, that software is eating the world. That's obviously not my line, um, but software is eating everything. And, it's, and it happens to be eating what's actually the most valuable brand in the world, which is money, which, is, which has been the US dollar. And it's, and it's kind of as inevitable as it was when the internet was invented that eventually something was going to take over the value of something that was a, not playing in the digital space. So I'll maybe stop there. I'll happy to elaborate on anything that you've got questions on or that anyone else has questions on. But that's, um, that's the upshot of this particular essay. Yo, what is going on, plebs? We're going to take a break from our programming to tell you about the resurrection of our print magazine, starting with the El Salvador issue. Starting this fall, Bitcoin Magazine will be available on newsstands nationwide and at retail stores such as Barnes & Noble. Don't want to get off your couch, though? No problem. You can also go to store.bitcoinmagazine.com. So skip the line and get each issue shipped directly to your front door with our annual subscription. I'm talking four issues a year that contain exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, along with powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Subscribe today and get 21% off using code podcast at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, podcast at checkout. The world of crypto can seem like the Wild West sometimes. Soaring highs, crashing lows, celebrity shills, and new coins popping up seemingly out of nowhere every day. Look, we get it because we've been there before. At Bitcoin Magazine, we aim to filter out the noise and help newcomers concentrate on the signal. That's why we focus on Bitcoin only. Learning about Bitcoin may seem intimidating at first, but we've worked hard to break things down in a simple and digestible format that anyone can understand. Bitcoin Magazine has launched a free 21-day email course that teaches you about the fundamentals of Bitcoin. You'll receive one new lesson each day that covers a brand new topic as we guide you down the Bitcoin rabbit hole with quick and easy three to five minute reads. Not only do you get the free course, but everyone who completes the quiz at the end will earn some free Bitcoin. Start learning and earning Bitcoin today. Visit b.tc forward slash 21 days to enroll. Yeah, I just want to kind of summarize and then maybe uh, I'll open the floor up to uh, my colleagues, Q and Chris, uh, maybe they can jump in. But I love the concept, you know, really what you're doing, you kind of pointed out the two 
uh, legacy biggest brands is Coca-Cola and the dollar, the dollar being the monetary brand, maybe the Coca-Cola being the commercial brand. And you kind of pointed out that uh, Coca-Cola from a commercial perspective was overtaken by network effects companies and technology companies. Uh, and that the digital component being associated with a extremely powerful brand trust, whatever word you want to add to it, um, that gives Bitcoin a massive, massive advantage. Uh, and, you know, let's just call it the medium to long term over the analog legacy biggest brand, which is the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that a sufficient summary? I mean, just yeah. kind of digest it all. Yeah, yeah. They, there's, it's a bit of jumping around. There's a, there's a, it's like a force. It's like running the bases, right? First base is what's a brand. Second base is the U.S. dollar is one. Third base is this is why Apple as a brand beat Coca-Cola and, and getting to home plate is, yeah, Bitcoin is going to do the same thing to the dollar. So it's a little bit of back and forth, but you got it. So let's talk. I, I largely agree. Um, my fa- So my favorite book is The Sovereign Individual. My second favorite book is a book that's called The Wealth of Networks. And it's mm-hmm. really all about open source tech, networking, mm-hmm. uh, network effects, etc. So big believer in the wealth of networks and, uh, you know, the software eating the world meme. Uh, but I want to talk about Bitcoin's brand in particular, right? So uh, I've been saying Bitcoin is a household name. Obviously, Bitcoin Magazine with our conference, I think the branding is very strong. And we lean on the Bitcoin brand pretty much like 100%. We, we didn't even come up with new branding, really. Mm-hmm. It's just all Bitcoin branding. Right. Uh, and Bitcoin itself, it, it truly does have a very, very strong brand. Can you talk a little bit about some of the strength in Bitcoin's brand that you're that you're picking up in, and uh, you know why you're optimistic that from a like a, a brand value perspective, that's going to continue sure. to uh, to get better. Yeah, the first time I actually heard someone talk about Bitcoin's brand. Uh, was when I was trying to orange pill someone who I've known for, oh my God, I've known him since I was like 14 years old. He was my counselor at summer camp, but only a few years older. So we've stayed, we've remained friends and he's, he's a very successful businessman and uh, he's a marketer. And when I was first talking to him about Bitcoin, there were all these other shit coins that were being promoted to him. And, but he, he came to me and he said, yeah, I kind of like, he didn't, he wasn't interested in any of the math and he wasn't interested in any of the, you know, the physics and the energy and the scarcity. He, he said, oh man, what a great brand Bitcoin is. It's like whoever came up with a brand, it's just such a perfect name. It's a coin and it's a bit. And this was what appealed to him. You know, like people give Satoshi credit for solving the Byzantine general's problem and creating decentralization and keeping his anonymity. He's a great marketer, too. He came up with a brand name that was just rolls off the tongue and is obvious from the get go. The first time you hear it, oh, this is digital money, right? Bits are bits and bytes are digital. Coin is money. And it's easy to spell. Nobody can misspell it. It works in any language. It works all over the world. It's just like such perfection um, in yet another thing because brands need to be simple. And boy, boy, is this simple. Uh, and it wasn't taken. Nobody else had come up with it. So again, it just this, this stroke of genius as a brand. And then when you think about it, um, it just it lives inside your head like a brand. Right? You just keep saying it over and over. And 
and it stands and it stands for certain things and represents things. And when you're first just studying it, it's, it's this curiosity. Many people have come to it in different ways. So it's, it's a curiosity of technology or it's a curiosity of freedom or it's a curiosity of getting rich quick and investment things. But in each of these cases, you think about it and its name, right? You don't, there, you don't think about cryptocurrency. Like, listen to the generic that they came up right? In brands, it's always like, well, there's Coke and there's colas or there's Kleenex and there's tissue. And the goal for a brand is to be synonymous with what the brand, um, with what the generic is. And the best generic they could come up with for this space is cryptocurrency, which, you know, that, that's not done so bad. But would you rather own would you rather own Bitcoin or would you rather own cryptocurrency? It's, I don't want to say it necessarily sounds like a scam cryptocurrency, which it is, but it's something sounds like it's a real mouthful. For me, crypto is so crazy. Yeah, like it makes like when people say, oh, passing around crypto. I'm like, yeah. Oh, what? Right. And it's short for cryptocurrency because the, the, the generic name is just it's so cringeworthy that they've come up with this other thing, which you then have to study to realize that it's cringe. But it was like cryptocurrency is cryptocurrency. It's like five syllables. It's hard to spell. Nobody knows what currency even is. And nobody knows what crypto is. So let's take two things. Like, look, Bitcoin, everybody knows what it is. Right? <laughs> cryptocurrency. Nobody knows what the fuck that is. Right. So it's the the generic really sucks, and and this is partly why Bitcoin is a household word to use your expression. Um, it is just it, it's simple to retain. It's it's basic value proposition is simple. Obviously, it's very complicated. What's what Satoshi had to do to create the software to work in its way, just like an Apple computer is easy to use, but they they've used the most complicated you know, the most sophisticated and elegant programming that they possibly could and integrated it as well with the most sophisticated hardware as they could to make something that's simple. And I think this is it very much with Bitcoin. We're still in the early days. So, you know, we're not we're not at the advanced stage of an iPhone level of sophistication, but we're kind of at a Mac stage. And and the thing works, right? Like as compared to all the other crypto stuff which doesn't actually work it's a, that all that stuff is a so, solution looking for a problem and it doesn't solve any kind of real problem whereas bitcoin solves one of the biggest problems in the world which is so in our faces right now that it's hard to deny that it's a problem i i pretty much 100 percent agree i also want to add in the fact that the the visual um expression of bitcoin is is an open source process mm -hmm. And that was crowdsourced and open source. Mm -hmm. So it really, uh, it like, you know, the orange bee and any other visual representation of Bitcoin has really, it, it, those are the representations that survived in the wild yeah. and actually like continued to catch on. So I think that that uh, is a, a very big reason why it's uh, so palatable just right. because, uh, you know, there, there was no central planning around the brand at all. It's amazing. Other than calling it Bitcoin. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, who is credited with creating the orange bee with the line through it? Uh, is that Satoshi as well? Or did somebody else come up with that? I don't think it is not Satoshi. And I know there's a bunch of fake stories. And I actually don't know right. the real story. So that would be a question for the man, Pete Rizzo, who also works for Bitcoin Magazine. Cool. He's uh, our, uh, <laughs> our in-house historian and probably uh, the world's Satoshi. I know. Editor, which is... Uh, kind of a crazy thing to say oh, i know I've re i read his great article uh was like a year and a half ago on the 10-year 
anniversary of Satoshi's disappearance. It was a great, great piece. Uh, but is Pete in the room with us right now? <laughs> We'll, we'll bring no, he's, he's, he is not. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I want to give Q or Chris a chance. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm curious if either of you want to jump into this combo. Yeah, thanks, Tomer. I'll definitely get around to uh, reading the whole article. But I guess another thing that's interesting with Bitcoin compared to, you know, Apple, if it's going after that brand. Do, do you think, I guess, you know, Apple is obviously a tech company. Tech is very deflationary, kind of. Uh, it's been better said by Jeff Booth and the price of tomorrow. But in at the same time, we have an inflationary currency that is U.S. dollar. Do you think that that's something that holds back all brands that aren't Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin can operate on its own its own rails. It's its own currency. I mean, in theory, you never have to go back to dollars. So just, I mean, aside from the deflationary technology mm-hmm. that is Bitcoin, um, mm-hmm. you know, just just due to time, it'll it'll pass it. With that alone, like everything yeah. that what I'm trying to get at is Apple operates on the U.S. dollar, you know, while they have a microchip and a computer screen and, you know, all these different gadgets, like everything's done in USD while Bitcoin. Yes, there is a USD price, but it is Satoshi's can be its own thing. Yeah, I, I, there's a couple of really interesting things in the point you make. I, I would actually um, I'll agree with most of what you said, but I'll just one thing. I'll start with the, the piece that I dispute. Uh, which is the very last thing that you said, which is that Apple operates on the U.S. dollar. Apple can operate on Bitcoin too. Apple operates at this code, like Apple operates on the innovation that, of the best product that they can make that they think people want in living a digital lifestyle. Ever since Steve Jobs came back and kind of defined that vision of there's going to be something called a digital lifestyle, which was the first time anyone talked about it, but he, he had the vision to foresee that we'll all be living on the, on the internet and get better and better and, and positioned Apple for creating a great solution there. So like, I think, I don't think Apple is going to collapse if Bitcoin overtakes the U S dollar and the U S dollar collapses. I think we, I will stay on Twitter spaces through my iPhone. Um, so, so I, I think app, Apple exists independent and for, there's kind of a really important point here, which is we take it for granted because these things, these nations these particular nations have been around for our entire lifetimes, but they haven't been around for the entirety of human history. And nations come and nations go, and currencies come and currencies go. We all, we all certainly know that. Um, so, so, so I think that that's a little something different. But where I really agree with you and where I would put it in, in my words is Apple's longevity, Apple's survivability is really dependent on what the company the organization Apple does. And if Apple messes up, Apple could die. If Apple messes up, Apple could get nearly wiped out. In fact, Apple's history shows how close they came to ending, to being over. Steve Jobs got fired from this company. They had a revolving door of CEOs who came in who lacked the vision to save it. Through some twist of fate, they brought Steve Jobs back and uh, and he needed a bailout. It's hard to believe, right, this moment in time. But he needed Bill Gates and Microsoft to invest in Apple so that they had enough capital to keep operating. And he had to fire something like 30% of the engineering team there and rebuild from scratch. So it's like Apple's fate is not as inevitable, which I think the point that you were making, as Bitcoin's inevitability. And, of course, Bitcoin isn't inevitable with no effort. It's not, it's not like a comet headed towards the earth that nobody can stop. It is 
inevitable in this decentralization, like CK was talking about, like, you guys are Bitcoin magazine, and I've got a book called Why Bitcoin, and Swan is Swan Bitcoin, 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 Bitcoin all over the world. Everybody's incentivized to support this, this uh, protocol that just gets better every time somebody else supports it. And, you know, if somebody does a shit job, then it doesn't make it worse. It just, they, they, they mess up, right? Like Bitcoin Magazine could go out of business. Swan Bitcoin could go out of business. I could lose my shirt selling my book. But that's not, none of those things are going to take down Bitcoin because it's the protocol that lies underneath. And I think that's the main point that you were making. And sorry if I've gone on for too long <laughs> responding, but it's like, that's really the fundamental difference between a protocol and a company or a protocol and a platform. And, and it's why we see Bitcoin seemingly so unstoppable. As long as one person is carrying that football of Bitcoin, Bitcoin's still alive. And, and there's so many more, right? There's millions of people carrying it and hundreds, if not thousands of companies carrying it. And it just, the network effect means that the more people who are carrying it, the better and more valuable it is. And it, and it continues to become. Whew, sorry, I get excited about this thing, <laughs> Bitcoin. No, that, that's a good response. I, and I think to your point, like, you know, companies that are built on Bitcoin can come and go. And, you know, even if Apple plugs into it, they get the benefit of it. Um, and that doesn't mean that you, just because you're on a Bitcoin standard doesn't mean you can't, can't get wiped out. I mean, we see people doing leverage yeah. trades with Bitcoin all the time and get wiped out. So, uh, but to your point, like, just because... Um, People come and go, you know, companies come and go, you know, the protocol still keeps marching yeah. forward. Um, so, Tom, I really appreciate that. I'll kick it over to Q now or, or CK if they have more to add. Yeah, I'd love to uh, sort of I have two points, Tomer. I've been loving everything you're saying about just brand equity in general. Um, the first goes to the idea of like how we can be measuring just as individuals rather than being reliant on someone else telling us like how valuable is this brand? Mm -hmm. And it goes back to this idea that I was taught where when a brand name goes from being a noun that just describes the company to being a verb that describes an action. Mm -hmm. So I'll start there where it's like Uber or Airbnb, very disruptive technologies that mm -hmm. took away taxis, that took away hotels. Mm -hmm. And now we say, hey, grab an Uber. I may not, I don't even use the Uber app, but I'm just gonna say I'm grabbing an Uber instead of I'm grabbing a taxi or I'm gonna grab a Lyft or whatever it is. That has become a verb increasing that brand's equity. Same to be said for Airbnb. And I would even argue and say, like, yes, I have way too many Apple products as I stare at my MacBook and my iPhone. Like, I don't say I have a laptop or, or a cell phone right. or I'm going to put my headphones on. No, I'm going to put my AirPods on. There is a brand equity to the fact that we are talking about that individual product. Yeah. And Bitcoin has that same sort of value proposition where we, within the community at least, started using things like, Hey, send me sats, stack sats, or hey, I'll I'll send you some Bitcoin. Not I'm gonna send you money. Uh, essentially, not not to have to make uh, to repeat myself, but essentially, it's that idea that when you start to replace the normal language or normal yeah. words in day to day with the actual product itself, that in itself is increasing that brand equity, whether we realize it or right. not. Um, and I think I think we're witnessing that in real time with Bitcoin. Um, but there was something you actually brought up earlier on where 
I'm, I'm, I actually don't necessarily agree with. The idea that while Apple has this sort of brand equity that increases the value of their MacBook, which is why we pay three times more for an Apple-branded laptop than any other type of uh, laptop, there are other brands that rely on their sort of secondary or tertiary products that their value proposition lives there and they essentially sell their product and their brand at a loss with the intent of we're going to make this money back. The idea or the, uh, the product that I'm thinking of right now is the PlayStation five. Sony sells this as a net loss based on all the software and hardware products that are put into this, but they make such great margins on the other you end. Bet, of yeah. it. And I kind of feel like right now where Bitcoin is, we're an echo chamber in here. I don't think any of us believe that Bitcoin is truly at the value that it one day will be at. And so as a result, any transaction on Bitcoin is a, is a transaction that we believe is going to net positive value in the future, i.e. the secondary or tertiary markets that get built on top of it are the real value propositions for Bitcoin, but we're not even there yet. So it almost feels like while the, the actual value of Bitcoin is nowhere even near the value that we all see, the brand equity is also still outpacing it. And so... I think that's my long-winded way of trying to say, like, we, we are yeah. so damn. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, uh, like, I agree with everything you said, so I, I'm not sure. And I, I think what you said is kind of over and above what I was trying to argue in my article. So I'm not sure if there's anything in my article that I particularly said that you disagree with. But, like, I, I think the example that I cite of, of the phenomenon you describe is HP sells a printer with ink for less than they sell the ink. <laughs> right? Because they know they're going to get you hooked on the ink and they expect that you're not going to just keep buying printers and throwing them out when the ink runs out, even though that's cheaper to do because of the, uh, of how they do it. And, and I think the phenomenon you're describing is I know my Bitcoin is worth a lot more than what I can sell it for or what I earn spending or, or what I get for when I spend it, but I still spend Bitcoin and, I, and the reason I spend, I spend Bitcoin is I like to get Bitcoin in other people's hands. I'd like to tip waitresses in restaurants and orange pill them because this is, I think this is, the, this is at least the point that I'm trying to make. At it. But I think it's, it's like the more people we orange pill, the more the Bitcoin we still have becomes worth. The network effect keeps growing. So it's worth it to spend, not to spend all of your Bitcoin, but it's worth it to spend Bitcoin on people who might become orange pilled. And it's worth it to spend it with Bitcoiners because they're going to spend it back uh, with you eventually. And you're starting to demonstrate and prove the case that Bitcoin works, right? Like if we all only ever held on to it and never spent any of it, we would never have the Lightning Network working. And if we never had the Lightning Network working, billions of people would not be persuaded that Bitcoin can scale. So like we have to use it to achieve the reality, the potential of this thing. I don't mind using it. I, it's quite a thrill to use it. You get a different thrill. You know, when the price goes up and your and your savings go up, that's cool. But when you, when I bought my the director of my movie breakfast in El Salvador from where I'm standing here in Toronto because he showed me a picture of the of the in, lightning invoice in the restaurant and I paid the restaurant directly instantly with Sats. That was like this magic moment. And almost every time I use lightning. It's kind of a magic moment. And for the first time ever, for me, people have been buying my book uh, using Lightning and, and Bitcoin. Um, it's about 
it's about 50-50 between how many people are using USD and Bitcoin. It's a bit of a biased market, of course. Um, but it's such a thrill. <laughs> you know, and I pay 4% with every Visa transaction when somebody buys it with Visa. I pay nothing with Bitcoin um, every time somebody uh, buys the book with Bitcoin. So I, don't, I, I give like a 10% discount. Why? That's irrational. I should only give a 4% discount. No, oh, I want people to use Bitcoin. And, and I know that the Bitcoin they send me will eventually be worth more. Uh, so it's kind of a way of getting a non-KYC uh, Bitcoin. But, uh, you know, without me rambling on even more, like this is, this is a point. <laughs> it may not be your point. It may not. It may, it's certainly not a point that I was trying to make in, in the article, but it relates to it because this network effect grows the more we use Bitcoin and not just for savings, but for medium of exchange and for unit of account. No, every, everything you said, I, I make sense. And I have been exposed to have not read your article yet. Um, I am kind of curious, though, what your thoughts are on the difference between increasing the network effect and therefore the actual value of Bitcoin versus the brand equity of Bitcoin. And is there a point where, like, I can only speak for myself. I won't speak for everyone else here. But like, I'm at a point where I look at an Apple product, for example, and I'm like, why do I need to pay that when I can get the exact same value elsewhere? I feel like at a certain point, when you overreach on that brand equity, you diminish the brand to a degree and you turn some people off. Is there a risk with that with Bitcoin or because we're talking about the soundest money mm -hmm. that that's not a real reality? Yeah, I, I, different people will tackle this. Like this is a complicated topic because I, in fact, I, I cloud the issue of what is brand equity because the firms that study brand equity, I think, have made a mistake. Right. Like I, I don't think Apple I think Apple has this brand equity when you describe it in the way that you just did. But I just bought an Apple computer because I didn't think and I paid a big premium for it because I didn't think I could get the exact same value running Windows software or Linux on on a different computer. I, the experience to me is different, but I don't want to get into a debate about Apple here. The issue of brand is a very complicated issue. I kind of begin the article by saying we're going to talk about brands, an issue even more complicated and mysterious than cryptography. Because it is this complicated and mysterious uh, topic. Like, what is this thing that people are prepared to pay for? And why are they prepared to pay for it? And emotion, like Coca-Cola is an emotional brand. Budweiser is an emotional brand, right? It's like, drink this shitty beer and girls in bikinis are going to want to come over and hang out with you, right? It's a, it's, it's a bit of a false promise, but, uh, but they get away with it. And, uh, and Coca-Cola is like, you'll have this wholesome American family life and all you need to do is drink this sugar water uh, and make it a part of your life and your Christmases will be wonderful and all that kind of stuff. You know, and the promise that Apple makes is not, it, it's a lifestyle promise as well, but it's one that is like, it's easy enough for your grandmother to use an iPad, right? And it's, and it's reliable for the Mac Pro, for the Pro series of stuff. It's like, this is what professionals use. There's probably a reason why they use it. And with Bitcoin, if we get to the brand now, it's this, it's reliability, right? Like remember Toyota was, like we, we can think of different brands where the, there's these similar attributes. Toyota made really reliable cars that were, that, well, I mean, that, that was the main point, right? That there were, there were affordable, reliable cars. Bitcoin is like the most reliable thing. <laughs> like nobody can, nobody can give it a flat tire. Nobody can wreck Bitcoin. Nobody can slow down Bitcoin. Nobody can stop Bitcoin. Like this thing just marches on and it's promises 
right? It's not in a marketing campaign. It's in its code. This, uh, this is the point that I was making about the magic of code and how Bitcoin's is so extraordinary, right? Bitcoin makes these promises. 21 million supply cap. You can't break it. You can't cheat it. Censorship resistant. You can't freeze it. You can't stop it. Permissionlessness. Everybody in the world can use it. Nobody can be stopped from using it under any circumstances. These big promises that Bitcoin makes through the way that it uses code and the way that it functions are these incredible promises that nothing else can make. Well, any, anyone can make these promises. Nobody else can deliver on them. And Bitcoin delivers on them, not just kinda, not just sometimes, but like always and forever. And we can even see with Bitcoin and 10 minute blocks, right? Like it will continue to work because of the difficulty adjustment forever. As long as anybody in the world is interested in keeping this thing running, it'll keep on running. So it's the most reliable brand in the world. It's, it's the brand of reliability. And what's it's reliable at? Well, it's a, what it's reliable at is the thing that, is in every single transaction in the world, money, right? Every single economic transaction in the world. So like, what are you going to buy your Toyota with? You're going to buy it with the most reliable money in the world. What are you going to buy your Apple computer with eventually? The most reliable money in the world, your soda water, your beer, all, everything. It's going to be a part of all of those things because of its enormous reliability. And this was, CK was saying like earlier on when I was still halfway through the article, it's about trust, right? And it's, it's this incredible, this is like a, Zen Dao thing, like in not having something, that's where it comes from. In not in being trustless, it becomes the most trustable thing in the world. In in having no user identity table, it becomes usable by every person in the world. It's the things that Bitcoin doesn't have, right? In in having no person in charge, it becomes the least corruptible institution. It becomes the incorruptible institution in the world by not having a compliance department it becomes the most unstoppable institution by not having a department of inclusivity it becomes the most inclusive institution in the world it's really remarkable i don't want to overplay this but this reliability and capability and trustability because it has nothing that can be unreliable inside of it uh, it's it's an extraordinary invention which leads to this then recognition of it which leads to the recognition of these values which is what then becomes the proper definition of a brand right a brand is what we think of a thing what benefits we trust the thing to give us right and many times the brands are lies many times the brands are accurate reflections maybe sometimes they're a little bit of a mix of both maybe sometimes we over project our hopes on them but bitcoin's this incredible brand because it hasn't overpromised and underdelivered. It just continues to deliver. Like it hasn't even. It hasn't really made a promise. It said, "Here's my code, run it if you want." Uh, and then all of us study and say, "Oh my God, do you realize this benefit comes from it? It's unstoppable. It's trustless. It's permissionless. It's censorship resistant. It's scarce. It's divisible. It's combinable. It's awesome." My fellow plebs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. 
Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Yo, my fellow Bitcoin lovers, have I got something specifically curated for you. The Deep Dive is Bitcoin Magazine's premium markets intelligence newsletter. This isn't some paid group shilling buy and sell signals. No, this is a premium Bitcoin analysis led by Dylan LeClaire and his team of analysts. They break down in an easily digestible way what is happening on chain, in the derivatives markets, and in the greater macro backdrop context for Bitcoin. This newsletter turns volatility into a joke. So hit up members.bitcoin.magazine.com and use promo code podcast for 30% off the deep dive. That's members.bitcoinmagazine.com, promo code podcast for 30% off. Divorce your pay group and learn why Bitcoin is the strongest asset by Dylan and LeClaire and his team. Yeah, I, I love how you describe Bitcoin and, and I, I 100% agree that like, it's really interesting that at the beginning you kind of point out that with when it came to Coke and when it came to USD, they were kind of bootstrapped by real value or like something that was very tangible. Uh, and then when when the rug was pulled, uh, both first with cocaine and then with uh, with uh, separating the dollar yeah. from gold, uh, they became 100% brand equity. And Bitcoin kind of is it kind of benefits from both because one like Bitcoin is, is, is not separable from, you know, it's unstoppable decentralized network, you know, the, the real value under it. Um, but two, you know, if you compare it to like other store of values that's competing with, you know, it's purely digital. It has, there is no kind of like um, non-digital utility associated with it. Um, and it doesn't, I mean, I, I, I consider that to kind of be uh, a very strong aspect of like this trust and brand component of Bitcoin. Um, and even if people don't trust it, they still know the brand. It's still recognizable. So uh, I don't know. There's a lot of components at play here. But uh, one of the, the reasons why I'm so bullish on uh, Bitcoin's ability to kind of have longevity uh, as a brand and as a, a trusted institution um, is because the like the uh, anti-fragile nature of its underlying value, which is the network. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's um, it's amazing. I don't I don't really have anything to add to that comment uh, other than, you know, this is kind of this deep reflection on branding again. It's like the U.S. dollar used to be worth a lot of money because it had gold behind it. Well, why did we think gold was valuable? It turns out that's a lot of brand promise, too. It's like, well, yeah, it's scarce it, and this and that and the other. But we we put this trust in money because these things that have monetary characteristics become money. And we just take it for granted that they are. We stop thinking about it the same way we stop thinking about, well, is uh, for some period of time, we stop thinking, well, is Coca-Cola really worth five cents a bottle? Or is Apple, as an Apple computer, really worth a thousand dollars more than 
Windows or Linux machine. So like we, we tend to not revisit, all, and that's part of the power of brands. So that they, we, we form habits of trust with brands, and then we don't revisit continuously every time we make a purchase. It's like, is Folgers still the coffee that I want to buy? Uh, we, we just we get in this habit of buying Heinz ketchup, right? And that's and that's it, unless we're not in the habit of it. That's what brand marketing is all about, creating an emotional connection that builds trust, that creates habit and repetition in purchase in purchase behavior. But when we when we talk and that's why so everyone in the world seeks the US dollar because it's just been there and it's been this habit all, all for so long. And really the opportunity for Bitcoin is in part because of the tremendous value that Bitcoin delivers. But those promises are really only valuable in the context of a world where the other thing that you were counting on to deliver on these promises has betrayed them or has failed at delivering on them. And I think that's really the tragedy of the time that we're living in. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not this exceptional case throughout history. It's happened every time through history when the temptation to pr when money has been printed, it's, it has been, uh, when money could be printed, it has been, and it's led to the decline of the empire. Ray Dalio's new book is all of this, and he's got a nice short video. It's not super short, but describing this, that every arc through history of, a f of an empire collapsing happens because the money can be printed and is, and, and it's temptation that's irresistible for those in power who rise to power and become they become, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not uh, corrupt is one word for it, but they become decadent. That's the word I'm looking for, right? They just, the leadership becomes decadent and lazy and, and sloppy and unintellectual. And eventually it looks like it's easier to print the money than, and more convenient than to do work. And that's what we're all complaining about today. And, uh, so I, I'm, I'm working on another article that's related to this notion, which is, well, what if you, what if an empire was built with money that couldn't be printed in the future, right? What if right now we laid the foundation for an empire that three generations from now, the decadent and corrupt elites who rise to the surface can't print anymore? What are they going to do? Well, they're not going to be able to destroy the civilization and the empire by printing more of it. And, uh, and that might be the historic turning point that we're actually at you know, many of us might not even live to see it because we'll be watching the construction of the empire, which is a, a great heyday after the, as the old empire falls. So it's, you know, you focus on the hope or you focus on the fear, but our grandchildren, our great grandchildren are not going to be able to make the mistake of printing money and destroying the empire because this, uh, this uncollapsible empire, as I, as I'm calling it is, uh, is something that was the root, the foundations of which were laid now that were these un, this indestructible foundation, unprintable money. Um, so stay tuned, <laughs> keep your eye open for something in a, within a couple of weeks, which is my attempt to think about this by changing the topic now from brand to empire. So speaking of, you know, the only opportunity for Bitcoin in terms of you know, taking over the dollar's positioning is if the dollar kind of defiles its trust. Um, this is a really interesting point and uh, something that Jason Lowry actually talked about in his most recent podcast with Robert Breedlove. The entire series, yeah. I think, is an absolute must listen. But uh, he he talks about how uh, when it comes to when it comes to the U.S. 
what we've been doing this entire time, or at least since 1971, is exporting trusted property, secure trusted property. Mm -hmm. That's what the dollar mm -hmm. is. And that's, you know, everyone is across the world is trusting on, is trusting the, the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's interesting now we see with Russia, we see across the globe with, with the, the sanctions and the weaponization of that trusted property system. You know, it, it truly is like they did not understand what they were doing or what they were, what, what it was that they were, what they were exporting. And now that they're defiling it, um, the the trust in the dollar is, is going away very quickly. You know, I think that, you know, between Canada and Ukraine and Russia, a lot of the West now understands that unless they have their property, you know, in front of them and they can protect it themselves, that it's not their property. Yeah. Right. You know, your assets in Russia are no longer yours. Yeah. Uh, if you're Russian, your assets in the U.S. are no longer yours. And that's, you know, they're trying to go even to the gold level. So um, it, it goes down to the, the foundation of the traditional system. Yeah. It's, it's really extraordinary to watch the defilement of the dollar system and the traditional system. Yeah. The, the, the evolution of the post-war order, right? And Peter Zahan has an incredible book on this called The Accidental Superpower, which, which is an amazing book about geopolitics. And he basically points out that the world order post-World War II, because every army in the world was destroyed except America's, and America ended up as this accidental superpower. They had the bomb. They had the only floating navy. They, they, you know, and, and they secured the world. And instead of, instead of making the world their, um, their subjects in one, in one way, they said, basically, we will allow you access to our economy, free trade. We will protect with our military the shipping routes all over the world. We will put military bases everywhere in the world to protect and preserve the peaceful flow of trade. And all you need to do to access our market is, tra is, tra is trade with us and not become a communist, right? Not, not side with, with our enemy. And this led to a, a very peaceful situation for a very long period of time. Now, it had its dark side, which is what we see, right? Like anyone who wanted out found American draw, bombs dropping on their head. But everyone who stayed in got access to the American market, became industrialized, became civilized, especially if they were in a strategic position um, to provide goods or barriers, obstacles to the enemy. And, um, and Peter Zahan points out in, in his book, he says, America isn't interested in doing that anymore. We don't want to fight wars anymore. We're, we're just not interested. Our demographics are not the same. Uh, to support it. And this, this fits hand in glove with Jason Lowry's thinking too, at least about, you know, the, the importance of like, the peace was protected by the threat of war. And that and, and now that we don't have the desire to fight anymore, and the desire to protect things, um, to protect the world order anymore, then bad guys are going to come to the fore. And this is exactly what Zahan predicted. And lo and behold, now we've got um, Putin invading the Ukraine. And the other point I was just going to make is like the things, although we're not prepared to fight the kinetic war, it turns out that in that period of time, the currency itself has become the weapon, right? Like we don't need to drop bombs. We just freeze all the assets, right? Like, and here I, I'm a Canadian, I live in Canada and 
witnessing the kind of the threat of, you know, if they shut off your bank account and freeze your money and freeze your Visa cards and you can't buy gas or groceries, you're dead, right? Like, you, you it's, it's like a form of prison, except at least in pre- prison, they feed you and keep the lights on, I guess. Um, no, now, it didn't get so bad that anybody actually had to experience, but the threat was clearly there. Your money is not your money. Your money is our money. We decide who gets to spend the money. So I think that there was a giant wake-up call here in Canada. It's been, it's been amplified a thousand times as much on a global level with what's happened in Russia and Ukraine. And we now all realize that ah, the money has become the bomb. And, uh, and so this now is Jason Lowry's point, right? Like the money already is the drone warfare and the weapons and, and Bitcoin is this one that you can actually self custody and it creates a different kind of stalemate where people can't harm each other with money. Uh, nations can't harm each other through this monetary warfare. And um, I just want to add one. Yeah, but go ahead. Sure. Just on the topic of like, your money being your own money. Um, This is not a a question. I just, it needs to be said, especially to those who are in the U S because a lot of people in America view what happened in Canada or what's happening in Russia or what's happening in Ukraine is not in the realm of possibility here stateside. Um, It went viral today on social media, but the director of black Panther and Creed Ryan Coogler in Atlanta yesterday attempted to withdraw cash, $12,000 worth of cash, using his own ATM card, entering his own PIN, and showing his ID. The police were called on him, and he was arrested. Like, this happens in our own country. So that is just, I want to highlight that as yet another example of the importance of, like, really getting our money out of the hands of a centralized entity and centralized control even in this country, in the United States of America, in Atlanta, it can happen. So that I just wanted to add that point to beyond what Jason and Breedlove were talking about and Tomer, your expansion of that. I can just say that, yeah, it's absolutely happening in America. It just depends on who you are. So uh, maybe, maybe it's because uh, you're black. Maybe it's because you're in the sex industry. Maybe because you're in the cannabis industry. It really just depends on who you are. Uh, and that's the, that's the problem with fiat, right? Is the fact that fiat itself is uh, is censorable and and it it reflects the bias of those who like, control it, whereas Bitcoin just does not care. Bitcoin just works. And my uh, most recently, the way I've been kind of describing Bitcoin to people who you know are kind of trying to digest what's happening around us is like. Yeah, Bitcoin is just money that works. That's why the Ukrainians are using it. That's why the truckers are using it. That's why the Russians are using it, because it works. Uh, It can't be frozen. It is yours, and you can choose when and what you want to do with it. So uh, I feel really bad for marginalized communities, but the thing that makes, you know, uh, a thing great, I think, is the ability to, you know, protect, in terms of property rights, is the ability to protect uh you know those that would be marginalized from from uh from the the majority or the the oppressors uh, and that's really what bitcoin does is it really doesn't matter uh where you are who you are 
it just it just works for you and it works for everyone else too. So I, I think that's going to add a lot to to kind of bring this conversation full circle. That will add a lot to the Bitcoin brand over time because Bitcoin is going to be extremely trusted because it works. Uh, and I don't think it's going to stop working anytime soon. Uh, and here's another saying I've been saying recently is the most toxic Bitcoin maximalists are going to be the people who adopt Bitcoin last because they're the ones who have been effed the hardest by the by the traditional financial system. And they're going to have uh, wished that they, they got on board with uh, a system that actually protects their property. And they will only accept Bitcoin into the future because they learned the hard lessons. Yeah. yeah. I, given what you said, I just wanted to take um, one minute to plug my book because there's a couple of articles in it. So whybitcoinbook.com. Uh, I, I originally wrote this series of 27 articles um, and, or 26 articles, but now I've got 27 in the, in the book. And they're all short. They're all like three minutes long, except for one, which is about six minutes long. And they cover all this gamut of information. And there's one, which there's a couple that relate specifically to the issues we were just talking about. One, one is called Why You Don't Need permission to use Bitcoin. And it actually explains how it is that Bitcoin delivers permissionlessness. Um, and another one is called why Bitcoin is the most inclusive institution in the world. And it, re and, and it emphasizes a different facet of this same point, right? Like if nobody is excluded and everybody is included, then it's the most inclusive institution in the world. And, um, and, and there's just something really beautiful that comes out of that. I should have, uh, should have gone to get the, the story because that particular one and I've been rewrite for people who've read some of these earlier on I've been rewriting some of them and the, the ending to the inclusive one is really really nice let me just see if I can uh, find it and, and finish off myself on on this thing so so why Bitcoin is the most inclusive institution right in the world I, I conclude with, uh, with with saying as there are no limits on who can use it, Bitcoin can bring everyone in the world together. It connects those with nice homes to those with no shoes on their feet. It gathers together people of all races, all genders, all religions, all ideologies, all abilities from all locations everywhere in the world. Bitcoin unifies all mankind with one system exhibiting incorruptible integrity, eliminating unjust discrimination and guaranteeing equal treatment for all. You want to talk about a brand like that? So that's the end of the article. You want to talk about a what a brand stands for? And like that, this is just one of the pieces in there. Like, I'm just so moved by what Bitcoin does because it delivers on these promises that we fought for and strived for for so long and never been able to achieve because there's always been fallible irrational human beings who enter the process. And that, that's the magic, right? Bitcoin takes human fallibility out of it by taking humans out of it. And the Bitcoin CEO is never going to be a racist because there's no Bitcoin CEO. That's how, that's part of the magic over here. And, uh, and yeah, so, <laughs> so why bitcoinbook.com uh, save $5 by using the code. Why not all one word, W H Y N O T save an extra 10% by using the code Bitcoin. If you pay with Bitcoin, and I, I'm not much of a salesman, so <laughs> that's that's all I can do. It's a beautiful book, though. You can take a look at it. And uh, I tried to make it something beautiful for Bitcoiners because I think you guys all deserve something beautiful. So both in language and in presentation, it's aesthetically quite nice. That's all the salesmanship I've got. 
you got to get your show in. I appreciate it. And uh, honestly, I've, I've really been loving, you know, all the work you've been putting into the space. I don't think you mentioned some of the nonfiction that you've been doing for mm -hmm. Bitcoin. I think that that's very, very interesting as well. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm very interested to see the evolution of like the the Bitcoin lore and mythology. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I think that that's really awesome, too. I know we only got about 20 more minutes uh, scheduled here. Uh, we have Chris Smith, who's also from the Bitcoin Magazine team. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. Um, but it's been a lot of fun just jamming on, on Bitcoin's brand, which I think is the strongest brand in the world already. Uh, and if, if it's not, then it's it's coming up pretty quickly. And, you know, we, we lean on it really hard here at Bitcoin Magazine. But yeah, Chris, what's up, man? What's up, CK? Um, thank you for letting me on. Um, Tomer, I actually have a question for you and um, CK, Chris, Q, any of y'all can chime in on this um, if you have an opinion. But the other night I was watching the Robin Hood movie and um, obviously this kind of goes hand in hand with what Bitcoin is doing a little bit. But um, Little John and Robin Hood, two of the main characters of the movie, were talking about taking the sheriff down who is really like the controller of this society. And um Robin Hood was asking, like, how do we take him down? He has this whole church behind him. He has this whole army behind him. Um, but little John um, kind of interrupted him and said, there's one thing that keeps him in power, and that's the control of the money. Um, and I was wondering, Tomer, what you kind of think about what society actually looks like who has embraced a money system that is not of centralized control um what aspects in actual society change and um i know you're a man who likes to speak of bitcoin and peace um how do you think that affects um i guess society as a whole and bringing on more peace in the society itself yeah um i know this sounds very hippie-ish uh i come from a I come from a, like I'm a businessman in, in my past. I had to make tough decisions and everything. But Bitcoin is is peace. It's a peace. It's a movement of peace because it takes away all. It takes away all of the threats and force. I, and I actually, I, I'm going to give just one last plug. Uh, I, I have an essay uh, um, in in the book. I actually finished the book with two essays. One is why Bitcoin is worthy of your love. And, and then the last essay is why Bitcoin is a movement of peace. And I, I, and the, and the back half of the book is really all about how Bitcoin is changing the world and how its adoption will change the world. And I, like I, I try to look out as CK was saying, I, I'm trying to write science, Bitcoin science fiction so that I can project out to the future and see what does the world look like on a Bitcoin standard. And I see a very beautiful world. Uh, I, 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 see, I see a world where everyone gives the best of what they can be in exchange with others for the best of what they can be. And not just that, it's a world where you can figure out what it is that you are and who you are. Like you want to be your excellent self. You want to, and for many of us, because we live in the fiat world, we don't even know, we haven't even started to explore. We've taken some shit job, some shit fiat job, which is a bullshit job so that we can live a bullshit life and 
this ends with Bitcoin. The, the bullshit ends because all the bullshit was fiat money shoved through hoses at bullshit jobs to, to allegedly keep employment full, but employment would be full. Otherwise, we wouldn't be overworking all these unnecessary hours in bullshit jobs where we're not really producing anything were it not for this. But I want to focus on the positive, right? Like there is an, every single person in this room right now and every single person not in this room right now is magnificent. And there's, they have tremendous potential and tremendous beauty and capacity to love and capacity to be creative in whatever way that they are, whatever, like there's so much diversity and variety. I'm not talking about what's being labeled as diversity today. Like I, I rediscovered myself as a writer, as a creator, not a businessman doing a fiat bullshit job, presenting financial reports monthly to my boss and, and that kind of garbage. And everyone has something special that they can give to the world, including just love for the people that love them back. And this is where a society that has sound money ends up because it, it, it's not only that, but it's such an essential ingredient that you can't have a, a normal human society when you don't have normal money. You end up with violence. You end up with a need to cleanse uh, the, the civilization and to wake everybody up. And, and Bitcoin is, in a sense, like a cleansing. I mean, people who come into it, they come into it for greed, right? It's like, oh, I can get rich quick. They come into it for greed and short time horizon stuff. And they spend some time in there and it cleanses them. And they're suddenly like, I'm not so greedy anymore. And I, I want to focus on the long term. And I want to figure out who I actually am. I'm not focused on the dollar signs in my eyes anymore. I'm focused on what it takes to create a decent civilization. So I, like, I, I can go on and I do go on about this a long time, but I know we've only got about 15 minutes left and I know you wanted to get uh, some feedback from some of the other uh, people on stage here. Um, so I would just say that all of my writing is also free on my medium, com or medium.com uh, slash at Tomerstrolight. You can find it in both of those places. There's a bunch of stuff on the Swan blog. And uh, there's even stuff on Citadel Magazine. Of course, there's stuff on Bitcoin Magazine. So it's not, it's not too hard to find my, my writing. And I, I think the, my, the best expression I've ever come up with uh, in terms of projecting the future is the 14-minute movie that I wrote uh, that was directed by Matt Hornick and that you guys at Bitcoin Magazine helped promote and produce and so did the folks at Swan and Mimesis and MicroStrategy called Bitcoin is Generational Wealth. If you haven't seen Bitcoin is Generational Wealth, uh, Google that. Uh, on YouTube, it's um, it's got about 180,000 views. It's 14 minutes long. Play it, the lights out, full screen, sound up, um, and that's my vision of where Bitcoin will take the world in a couple of generations' time. That's awesome, uh, CK, Chris, Q. Do you all have anything to add to just um, what type of society do we? Do we see ourselves in where the money is not controlled by any centralized entity? I yeah, wanna... I mean, uh, I think like uh, localization is a trend that uh, has been picking up, and I think Bitcoin definitely uh, supports and 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 pushes the world to localizing even more. Uh, I am a big fan of the book The Sovereign Individual, which kind of like tells of this world where there's. Uh, country competition um i also when i kind of think of like how the fiat system works i really think in like 80 20s so like right now the way that 
the fiat system works is that 20% of the world is living in kind of like online and in the future. And 80% of the world is living in destitution. You know, it really is incapable of bringing more people online. It's incapable of scaling to support more people in an equitable way. I think what Bitcoin does is it actually brings people online. It brings human capital online. You know, the entrepreneur in Nigeria that's been shut out of the system, they can now build on Bitcoin. And they are. Like, they are. There are several ventures-funded startups coming out of Nigeria. And, you know, venture-funded fintech companies were never coming out of Nigeria before. They were never coming out of Guatemala before. So Bitcoin's bringing people online, but it also brings energy online. So there's wasted energy, trapped energy, uh, unviable energy across the globe. And again, Bitcoin brings it online. So uh, I really do think it's it's this kind of vision of uh, less waste, more equity, uh, and then more choice. Because, you know, from a nation state perspective, uh, we're going to we're going to be able to take our property from nation state to nation state. And we're going to have nation states vying for our business more than you know, you're born where you're born and you're kind of trapped there and you just deal with what with the hand you're given. So uh, that's kind of my vision for what Bitcoin does to the future, really the sovereign individual as well as bring people and energy online. And I think it, I think it really aligns with what Tomer uh, illustrates in his uh, in his his film, uh, Bitcoin is Generational Wealth. Uh, it's just this realignment and uh, it, it changes so many key factors uh, for how we organize ourselves that, you know, it's it's hard to compare it to how things are today. I'd also take it even a step further, like a lot of what CK has said and the sovereign individual as well um, really maps out where my thought process goes. Um, but I would say really the digitization of our money will help us to be able to just pick up and go. Like we live in a very material world currently, and I think our generation, stealing this from the sovereign individual fully, uh, our generation will be one of the last. Like we're watching big corporations start to buy property. I think, unfortunately, that will a lot more property will be owned not by individuals but rather corporations, and what that looks like remains to be seen. But those of us who have a digital mindset and mentality will be able to bounce and do whatever we see fit, wherever we see fit. If I want to be spending a majority of my time snowboarding, I can be able to just pick up and go, take what clothes I need, equipment I need, so long as my job is tied to the internet. I think that is going to be the the largest sort of factor. The thing that while there is a promised land and, and things will hopefully balance out, uh, I do want to present the other eye, the other side of the coin. Um, I myself love those moments where for 24 hours I shut down phones. I am completely unplugged and off the grid. I will catch up on what happens in the world in 24 hours. No one can bother me. In this digital age, especially if things like Starlink become more and more uh, – engrossed in our society and we become far more reliant on being interconnected digitally uh those days will be gone and gone forever um there may be opportunities to sort of seek out that type of opportunity to be completely unplugged 
Um, but as we become more digitized through our work, through our money, through our lives, um, it will become more dangerous, I think, to go that route to unplug even for an hour. Um, what that risk entails remains to be seen. But I do think that there is there is a balancing act that does need to happen. Um, and as history and society has shown us in the past, we tend to overcorrect in a certain direction before we finally find sort of a happy medium. Um, I do look forward to a world though, where like rather than having to be reliant on 400 million different people to agree on an idea to move an idea forward unanimously, or even 200 million people to agree on an idea just to like convince people in charge to move forward the notion and idea of smaller groups based on similar values, I think will inherently help humanity push forward, create competition in ways that we don't even recognize can be created under this capitalistic system that we live in because the incentive structures are tied back to this fiat money printer. Um, it will be very interesting, but I think those are the two things that I, I, worry about and look forward to at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, you, you said a lot, and I'm not going to respond to all of it. I, I don't really disagree with any of what you said in particular, um, and I agree with much of it. The, this notion of competition is a really interesting word that comes up because it comes up in the, in the notion of capitalism, and, and it kind of got perverted in the 1980s when when we took competition as good to greed as good and greed is a different thing than competition, but even just competition is good. And, and sometimes we think of things that are opposites. Like we say, well, the opposite of competition is cooperation, but Bitcoin creates this convergence of things. And if you could, if you think about something like Bitcoin mining, even right, Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining is a cooperative game. At the end of the day, the different miners compete, but as soon as one scores a point, finds a block, they all accept that that block was scored and they all start working on the next one. It's all because of the mechanics of how Satoshi did this. And, and so Satoshi is credited with solving the Byzantine generals problem, which is for people who've heard how it's framed. It's like there's four generals and they want to attack a city, and but they can't trust each other uh, so that they, they can't figure out how to coordinate their attack on this poor city. And the reality is, he didn't solve that particular problem because it's not about how four guys can team up on one guy. Because if in the in the mining solution that he has, if that city starts mining too, they're all in peace with one another. Uh, and so he created the system where there's no war, the, the, where the competition are, leads to rules that just get everybody playing a cooperative game. Different people score points at different points in time, but nobody undermines the nature of the game itself, and it continues self-reinforcing. And so I, I think what's so amazing about this invention that gets so many of us uh, so deep down the rabbit hole is it creates this nexus of things that we thought were opposites. Right? I've, I've been in Twitter spaces where capitalists and socialists are the only thing that they're fighting about anymore is why Bitcoin better is a better descriptor of capitalism or socialism than the other way around. They, they thought they were diametrically opposed, but they show up in the room. They're both in favor of Bitcoin. And we see this we see this thing happening. There's just something so fundamentally true and right about Bitcoin that no matter where you come from, you find 
agreement with it. And it's really only the explicitly corrupt, right? The people who say I should have something that I didn't work for, who who suffer from the Bitcoin derangement syndrome, right? Or who are trying to get away with distorting economics by telling irrational things. There's a purity and an honesty to Bitcoin that brings together lots of people. This is again why I say it's a movement of peace, because we all find peace in being what we want to be and being able to lead. You know, the other thing with Bitcoin is if you don't want it, I'm not forcing it on you. It's not forcing itself on you. Nobody is, you know, if you don't want to deal with me, that's fine. I'll leave you in peace and you'll leave me in peace. That's that's a really extraordinary system that we don't see anywhere else. Y'all, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. It's gotten a lot deeper than just Bitcoin's brand, but it, I think, you know, we're trying to get to the essence of, you know, why Bitcoin is such a powerful movement. And it kind of, it, it goes from the tech to the brand, to uh, the network, to all of these different factors. Uh, it's uh, really fascinating to kind of tease it out with y'all. Tomer, I really appreciate you writing the book and uh, writing the article and all of the different things that inspire these conversations. I also want to give a quick shout out to Alex Gladstein, who just published all of his Bitcoin magazine essays into uh, book form in a book titled Check Your Financial Privilege. So uh, he just announced that 10 minutes ago and I pinned it to the top as well. So uh, check out what Gladstein's doing. Check out what Tomer's doing. Check out Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate Bitcoin gathering. 30,000 people coming to Miami Beach, Florida in 27 days. 27 days, y'all. You can still get your tickets. There are tickets for everyone at every price range. And I mean it. Uh, and y'all make the investment in yourself, go to the ultimate Bitcoin gathering, meet Bitcoiners across the globe and show up to see history being made again, Bitcoin 2021 is where El Salvador, uh, became the first nation to make Bitcoin legal tender. And, uh, we plan to, uh, we plan to do everything that we can to have more world changing announcements and moments at this year's event. So Thanks so much for the time, everyone. Thank you so much, Tomer. Thanks so much to the Bitcoin Magazine team that joined on stage, both Chris's and my man Q. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Peace. Peace out, everybody. Love you all.